The first approved clinical research involving gene therapy in a human took place in 1990. Since then, advances in gene therapy have led to new therapeutic opportunities for once untreatable diseases. Government agencies in Europe and the United States have approved four gene therapy products for patient use, and more than 800 cell and gene therapy applications are under consideration by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with Catherine High, Emeritus Professor of Pediatrics at the Perlman School of Medicine of the University of Pennsylvania, and President and Head of Research and Development of Spark Therapeutics. Dr. High has co-authored a Frontiers in Medicine article on gene therapy for genetic disease. Dr. High, the use of gene therapy in patient care involves highly sophisticated technology and care coordination, but the basic principles of gene therapy are fairly straightforward. Can you describe those principles? Yes. The basic principle is that for people born with serious genetic diseases, If we can provide a normal copy of the gene that contains the mutation to the physiologically relevant target cell, and what I mean by that is, for example, for Duchenne muscular dystrophy, if we can provide it to skeletal muscle, for cystic fibrosis, if we can provide it to the cells in the respiratory tract, for sickle cell disease, if we can provide it to the hematopoietic stem cells that eventually become red cells. So if we can provide it to the physiologically relevant target cell, then the patient can make the missing protein for himself or herself. And since DNA is a very long-lived molecule, as opposed to proteins, which are more short-lived, this should be an intervention that we have to do very infrequently. What diseases are ideal candidates for this kind of gene therapy approach? There are many diseases that can be approached by gene therapy, and the major hurdle is safe and efficient delivery to the target cell of interest. But what I usually explain to people, as a first approximation of diseases that can be approached using gene therapy, if you think about diseases for which we can do bone marrow transplantation, Those are usually diseases that can be approached by lentiviral vector-mediated gene therapy. And if you think about diseases for which we do enzyme replacement therapy, those are diseases that we can often approach using AAV-mediated gene transfer. But that's really only a very rough approximation and a starting point for gene therapy because, for example... There are diseases that people tried to treat with bone marrow transplantation but were unsuccessful, which have now been successfully treated, at least in clinical investigation, using gene therapy approaches. And one of the examples of that using lentiviral vectors is metachromatic leukodystrophy. This is a rare metabolic disorder that is characterized by neurodegenerative symptoms in the pediatric population. People had tried using bone marrow transplantation to fix this disorder, but it was unsuccessful. However, using gene therapy, it was possible to produce much higher levels of the missing enzyme in the bone marrow cells, some of which eventually migrate to the brain and get much more promising outcomes in the disease. And these are published data in clinical trials. And people, of course, are trying to move that forward as a therapeutic. So that's an example where bone marrow transplantation did not work, but gene therapy, because we have the capability to express higher levels of the protein than you could in a wild-type cell, a gene therapy approach using the bone marrow cells did work. 
And similarly, one of the licensed products in Gene Therapy Now is for a rare form of congenital blindness. And because that is a protein that has to be supplied to cells at the back of the eye in the retina, that's not something that can be done repetitively for a protein injection and get to the retinal pigment epithelial cells, but it can be done as a one-time treatment with gene therapy. In the past five years, gene therapy has entered the realm of market-approved pharmaceuticals. What's made that progress possible? What's been happening? It's really interesting that in gene therapy, we can see as clearly as we can for many other classes of therapeutics that the eventual successes were built on a rigorous scientific evaluation of the initial failures. So a good example of that is the work in ADA SCID. This is one of the currently licensed products, and it's for a rare form of immunodeficiency in children. And the very first trials at the NIH in 1990 were for ADA SCID. They showed that you could safely transfer the gene, but they did not confer a real therapeutic effect. And investigators in Milan looked at those results, analyzed them, and made two modifications to the protocol. One was that they did mild conditioning before the gene-modified autologous cells were reinfused into the patient to improve the engraftment of the cells. And the other was that they withheld enzyme replacement with PEG-ADA which then gave a selective advantage to the gene-modified cells. And those two changes to the protocol resulted in clear therapeutic success for the gene therapy approach. What are the major risks associated with gene therapy, and what's being done to mitigate those? Well, again, before there were any trials in gene therapy, investigators made lists of all the things that might occur as adverse events. But we learned through clinical investigation that most of the risks really come down to only one or two. For gene therapy that targets the hematopoietic stem cells, so this is ex vivo gene transfer, the most likely cause of toxicity is actually what we call genotoxicity arising from integration of the donated DNA into an untoward location in the patient's genome. And the prediction had been that such an event might lead to insertional mutagenesis and development of a malignancy. And in fact, that was seen in the original trials for X-linked SCID, a rare immunodeficiency disorder that affects children. And eventually, a number of those children went on to develop leukemia. And in response to that, the field began to investigate, develop, and then eventually use clinically a different type of integrating vector called lentiviral vectors. Preferred sites of integration of lentiviral vectors are distributed throughout actively transcribed genes rather than clustered at the beginning of the gene where it's more likely that these insertional mutagenesis events could occur. And a number of other features were introduced into genes to reduce the risk of genetic payloads 
to reduce the risk of insertional mutagenesis. And so since switching to the use of lentiviral vectors, the insertional mutagenesis events that were seen with retroviral vectors have not, to my knowledge, been seen. So gene therapy, as we've said, involves complex technology and care coordination for the patient. And those things can be expensive. What role does the cost of gene therapy play in its future development and dissemination? Well, you know, I think that there are at least two ways to look at this. One is that if you think of it in the context of enzyme replacement, for example, so for a patient with severe hemophilia who is facing a lifetime cost of clotting factor replacement therapy of three dollars to $400,000 per year, and a person, that's a person with a life expectancy of close to normal, we can see that this is a very substantial cost if we stick with protein replacement. And so if you think of gene therapy in the context of what the system is currently paying for enzyme replacement therapy, then gene therapy is a very good alternative to what we're doing now because it's much less burdensome for the patient and it's not likely to be more expensive. So really the question comes about types of diseases for which we currently have no therapies. So those will not offset cost in our current healthcare system. And an example of that is the therapy for congenital blindness for an inherited retinal dystrophy. So before the licensing of this first product for an inherited retinal dystrophy, there was no treatment for these. And most of these patients progressed to complete blindness. And we know that, for example, 70% of adults who are blind uh, do not hold the job. And so there are clearly societal costs to a genetic defect that results in blindness, but it's not a cost to the healthcare system if there's no treatment for it. So what about a situation like that where it's a severe disease or a disease that really compromises somebody's independence or a life-threatening disease for which we currently have no treatments and then gene therapy develops a treatment? So then where do we as a society find the resources to pay for that? So to me, it would be very unfortunate for the system if we funneled all the work in gene therapy to offset the cost of diseases for which we currently have treatments. Because to me, the real promise of the Human Genome Project was that all of that work would allow us to develop new treatments for diseases that currently have no therapeutic approaches, like congenital blindness. So you're asking an important question. I'm not sure I have the answer. I think in some ways in societies where it's clear that the economic cost of a serious condition like blindness, as well as the costs of medical care, all come from the taxpayer dollars, such as many systems in Europe have, it's a little easier to answer your question. So aside from cost, what challenges do you see gene therapy having to overcome to become more widely available? Well, at this point, the number of licensed products is quite small. So all of those 800 investigational drug applications that the FDA is managing now and selling gene therapy presumably will give rise to more approved products. I think that for AAV vectors that are administered directly to the patient, most of what is needed for the use of those products is in place in our current medical care system, cold chain supply for the vectors, which are stored at minus 80 degrees. That's already in place for a number of other specialty pharmaceutical products. 
There are some additional learnings for pharmacies to handle these products. They're likely to be mostly administered through hospital pharmacies at this point because of the administration procedures involved. Most of them are administered in outpatient procedures, but they'll still be, I think, mostly handled in hospital pharmacies. And there is some learning there for the pharmacist to handle the product, but I don't think that's an especially insurmountable learning curve. I think that for cell therapies that involve transduction of the patient's hematopoietic stem cells, for example, and then after manipulation of the cells in the laboratory, returning those cells to the patient, we're looking at the necessity for a fairly sophisticated cell processing facility with highly trained personnel managing that process. And so I think we'll initially see that mostly occurring at designated treatment centers. So finally, how do you see the role of gene therapy in the clinical setting evolving over the next 10 years? What advances are you most excited about? Well, I'm excited about a number of potential products which are now in clinical testing. I've certainly been excited for a long time about work that's ongoing in Duchenne muscular dystrophy. I have spent a number of days at the meetings of the patient advocacy organizations for muscular dystrophy, and I've seen how much these parents have struggled to find some better therapeutic options for boys born with this disease. And to me, it's very exciting that there are some gene therapies in testing for Duchenne muscular dystrophy that appear to be promising. I think for diseases like Huntington's disease, where we have begun to see some promising work using antisense oligonucleotides, but it would be wonderful if we could develop a gene therapy approach so that it was not necessary to repetitively administer intrathecally a therapeutic. So that's another one that I'm excited about. Of course, I'm very excited about hemophilia, and the trials for hemophilia are now advancing into phase three. I think that we honestly, our protein therapeutics for hemophilia have been a wonderful advantage for people with hemophilia. At the beginning of the 20th century, most people with severe hemophilia died in childhood or adolescence, and recombinant clotting factors have allowed us to make a nearly normal lifespan, but at the cost of a a very demanding therapeutic regimen. If we can get to a successful gene therapy for hemophilia, it really has the potential to greatly demedicalize the management of the disease, uh, a one-time intervention, and then the patient is really able to pursue a normal and active lifestyle without therapeutic intervention. And so I think that there's a lot to be excited about in terms of new treatment options for people born with serious inherited diseases. Thank you, Dr. High. 